Hello, my rebels. I want to show you some Toronto reactions to the Alberta election. It's just exactly what you'd think it would be. But actually, there's a little clip I'm going to show you that is so gorgeous. It's it's from Edmonton. Uh, City News in Edmonton has this amazing panel. Oh, my God. Uh, you're going to enjoy it because it's so funny. But I wish you could see it on the podcast because one of the gals, I shouldn't even say gal, that's assuming their gender. G is chawing gum uh, like as my um, grandma used to say, don't chew. It looks like you're chewing your cud, like she would say when I would chaw like gum. Uh, this this G is chewing gum like it's like it's just a workout. She's getting her cardio, chewing gum, and that just adds to the gorgeousity of it. The reason I say you should watch it in video is because it's hilarious, but also because that would make you a premium subscriber to the Rebel. Go to the Rebel.media/shows and sign up. It's eight, eight bucks a month. This is gorgeous. It's funny. It is funny. And, and you got to see this G. You've got to. All right. The Rebel Media slash shows. Without further ado, here's my podcast about Toronto's take on the upper election. Take a listen. Tonight, Toronto's Liberals react to Alberta's election. It's April 18th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Well, Albertans have spoken. 63 seats in the legislature for Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party, 24 seats for the NDP. My prediction was off a bit. I thought Kenney would get 70 seats. I'm slightly surprised that Edmonton was so solidly for the NDP. I guess they never really experienced the depth of the recession that the rest of the province did, that the private sector did, especially oil and gas and construction and everything that depends on it. Retail, restaurants, auto dealers, everything real. The public sector bubble was great. 50,000 plus new jobs for bureaucrats in the past four years. So yeah, I guess out of sheer self-interest, why would they vote to end their own NDP gravy train? There might be one or two revisions as some late counted ballot boxes are included, but it's a done deal. Jason Kenney is the next Premier of Alberta, and it wasn't as close as pundits wished it was or claimed it would be. It was 55% to 32% going by raw popular vote. Again, it shouldn't have even been that much for the NDP, don't you think? But I expect that in the next election, the NDP will fall further down, since voting for an NDP opposition doesn't make the gravy train run. Some Edmontonians might want representation in a conservative caucus or cabinet, and some might actually like having a prosperous private sector again. I love the fact that subject to those late ballots being counted, the one conservative candidate who was elected in Edmonton was this guy, Casey Madu. Now, I've never met him, but he seems like a wonderful Canadian success story. I like the fact that he's politically incorrect enough, politically real enough to look at this, to pose for a photo with our very own Stop Notley Lawn sign. Boy, he's looking good, and that sign's looking good. That made me feel great to see this photo. You know, we handed out 5,000 of those signs, and by we, I mean Sheila and Kean did. 
It made me laugh when the left-wing pressure groups immediately jumped on Casey Madhu, a black immigrant to Canada, and implied he was some sort of, I don't know what, white supremacist, Nazi, or whatever. He's a black man. It was just perfect, because why not? I mean, it's not like that accusation has any substantive merit 99% of the time when it's applied to a white guy. So why should that stop them from smearing a black guy whose only sin was to be a proud conservative? I love this guy, and I've never even met him. Now, Madhu's NDP opponent is a leftist, former CBC journalist named John Archer, and he tweeted out this bizarre image. I don't know, is that his own handwriting or his kid or something? It's weird. Vote as if your skin is not white. What? What, what, what does that mean? Why, and why would a white man tell voters to vote as if they're black, if they're white, and if his opponent was black, why is he so obsessed with race anyways? I don't even get it, but I am delighted that John Archer, the NDP, are lost, and Madhu won. But can I show you something just insane? Here's an election night panel put together by an Edmonton TV station called City. Now, the host seems nice enough, seems like a nice guy, and there's three young women on the panel. You know the young lady on the right here, her name is Amber Ruddy. She's a great pro-business advocate. We've had her on the show. Uh, she's really smart on this panel, too. But would you forgive me? I'm not going to show you Amber's remarks here. She basically said it was a vote for free enterprise and jobs and pipelines. That's correct. But my point today in showing this clip is to show how unhinged the two leftists on the panel were. So I'm only going to play some clips from those other two guests. I'm not sure what the theme or the rationale behind the construction of this panel was. Young women. Okay, I get it. Sounds good. But just take a look at these two gals. I think it's a sad day for Alberta. I, I really feel like in the next four years, our anxieties will be founded. The UCP has shown us sort of who they are and the people they're going to support. We even just saw showing Mark Smith's writing that he won. And just a few years ago, he tried to put a policy forward to make it legal to fire teachers for being gay. I'm beyond furious right now. I'd like to thank the people of Alberta for showing me how little this province cares about LGBTQ rights, about the rights of uh, poor and working class people, racialized people, immigrants, refugees, newcomers, and to see how little this province cares. I am so furious with this province right now. And to know that my fellow Albertans chose the economy and jobs, um, often on false promises of, of improving the economy on sometimes baseless claims, and how that is more important than the life of myself and so many others. Thank you, Alberta, for showing me exactly who you are. Holy macaroni. <laughs> Yikes. Um, I'm just going to back away slowly and not make eye contact. Folks, that is what the left looks like today. I like the gum chewing. It added a certain youthful je ne sais quoi. Um, so much for the party of the working man and woman. And the NDP, as you may know, was started as a far party of labor and farmers. 
That's what the CCF was. It was the progenitor of the NDP. It's now the party of, I guess, personal therapy for professionally aggrieved activists who seem to hate their neighbors. That I saw a lot of hate there. I didn't see a lot of hate on the Kenny campaign, but who? That's why I'm shocked that Edmonton even voted for the NDP again. Is that really the look and the sound of Edmonton these days? If it is, yikes. And look at this. Look, 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 look. Look at that top there. An NDP activist wrote a bit of a Jesse Smollett. You know that black actor in Chicago who claimed he was attacked at 3 a.m. by a couple of Donald Trump supporters who saw him outside the subway sandwich. Remember that story? And they put a noose around his neck, he said, and threw bleach on him, and he fought them back off. And the whole time he never let go of his subway sandwich. Remember that hoax? Well, let me read this guy's version of Jesse Smollett. He said, this literally just happened. I'm going to read it in my Miles McKinnis voice. This literally just happened. I'm walking my dogs by myself in Old Strathcona, and this white guy, yuck, looks at us from across the street, and by us, I mean me and my dogs, and he does a Nazi salute and says, Heil Kenny, broad daylight, casuals, anything clear and confident. I wish this was a joke, but it's literally true. Um, yeah, no, brother, that didn't happen. That did not happen. Um, and I'm glad you left out the part about the dragons and the pirates, because... That's even less credible. But look at the reply. Do you see that reply underneath it from Denise Balkisun? Um, she is a Globe and Mail columnist. She is the daughter of a liberal politician in Ontario. And, and she says, hi, Parker, I'm a Globe columnist. Can you follow me for a sec so we can direct message? Yeah, folks, you're watching a hoax being concocted in real time right there. And he totally looked at my dogs and he called my dogs Nazis. And then he ran away in a pickup truck, and he said, Hal Cunny. And then the dragons came. But those two women in that first city news video, I'm hoping, I, I hope I'm not assuming their gender wrong. I, you know, Xi and Zhur, and then that NDP extremist and that Globe extremist, that's people who are a little bit off their rocker. I don't think most people are like that. I don't even think most liberals are like that. Maybe I'm wrong. But I'm afraid an awful lot of liberals and leftists are like this. This is from the Toronto Star, naturally. Alberta is now in reverse gear and roaring backwards. Back to the day when a high school dropout could earn $100,000 a year driving a truck for an oil sands giant. Back to a time when no one had even thought of climate change. All delusion. Really? So Alberta's in reverse gear now? Alberta has the highest unemployment rate west of the Atlantic provinces. That's insane. Calgary has the worst unemployment rate in the country. How is that even possible? So that's now, while every other oil jurisdiction in North America is booming, Texas, North Dakota, whatever, and the Toronto Star says that Kenny will be putting the province in reverse somehow. But look at what they really mean. They really mean he's going to be good for business. Roaring. They just say... He's roaring backwards. So they admit the engine's roaring, but it's roaring back to a time when what? Well, when the Alberta economy wasn't on his knees. That's weird to complain about that. But the key part is the classist sneer. Back to a day, they said, when a high school dropout could earn $100,000 a year driving a truck for an oil sands giant. That's what they said. Really? That sounds pretty good to me. 
Pretty good. A uh, hundred grand to be a truck driver. Now those are some pretty big trucks. I remember 2013, 2014, before oil prices tumbled, before the NDP brought in their carbon tax. There were truck drivers making that kind of money. There were. I met a welder. He, he was maybe like 25. He was making a hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year as a welder. A hundred and eighty grand. It's pretty good for a skilled trade and even unskilled trades. I remember meeting a mum from Newfoundland in Fort Mayne, where actually she was just outside the city. She said she would come to Alberta to cook at a work camp for the men for a few months a year. Remember, the, the oil sands aren't in the city of Fort McMurray proper. They're maybe 100 miles out or something. So they live in this camp. And this lady from Newfoundland basically just cooked for the guys. And she told me she made so much money just cooking, you know, bacon and eggs for breakfast and sandwiches for lunch or whatever. She made so much money doing that in the wintertime when the ground was hard and they could operate there that she could then go home for most of the year, actually, to Newfoundland and still afford to live in her town and follow her passion, which didn't pay at all. She ran a bed and breakfast out there. So she made, I don't know, about 75 grand a year just cooking for the guys for a few months. And then she'd go back to, I don't know, Twillingate or, or whatever outport she was in and live off that money in a low-cost town that was home. That's a great story. Yeah, Toronto Star, I don't think she had a university degree. Sorry that the little people are getting ahead and loving it and succeeding without some government grant or some taxpayer investment or some strategic smart cities supercluster innovation program that winds up giving 12 million bucks to Loblaws for fridges or something. You know, severely normal people, including those without a university degree, make money driving and welding and digging and cooking and building a country and selling things that people actually want, or at least they used to until the NDP flattened the place. Unlike the Toronto Star, for example, by the way, a business that's losing so much money that it's applying for, yeah, you guessed it, a government bailout. A college degree, they say. What college degree exactly should those young men and young women spend four years and what, incur a hundred grand in student loans? What should they get? Which grievance studies should they focus on? Uh, gender studies, uh, colonialism studies, vegetarian studies maybe? What, what are they peddling in universities today? Why? Spend a hundred grand in debt so you can graduate with a useless degree and then earn maybe 15 bucks an hour writing clickbait for the Toronto Star. Yeah, that's a better idea then. <laughs> Who would even want to do that? Who would even want to do that? Yeah, Alberta is back. And no, it's not ruining the climate. Even the United Nations itself, the Internet Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, says that all the carbon taxes in the world won't actually change the weather. You'll notice that even Catherine McKenna, the cult leader here in Canada, she never claims that her carbon tax will change the weather. Look at her vocabulary, her choice of words. She always says her taxes will fight global warming. She never says they'll stop global warming or even slow global warming. They'll just fight it because she knows it won't slow it or stop it. She knows it. And she wouldn't even dare say such a fib. The funny thing is that the Toronto Star and the NDP actually think they're for the people, for the working man, for the working classes, but they are not. They like the idea 
of working classes. They like the idea of the people. But I know what the people look like a little bit. And my friend Sheila Gunn-Reed and Kean Bexty, they know even more. They, the people look like the men and women in the oil convoys that Sheila and Keen have been covering. Hardworking guys and gals just trying to put bread on the table, try and pay for the kids. And to the G's and the jurors on that pundits panel and the woke feminists at the Globe and the Star. It's just too yucky. They have oil on their hands, I think. And the fact that a high school dropout could actually earn a good living and raise a family and buy a house and live a life while those losers at the star live in the most expensive city in Canada in a miserable job and are hated and distrusted by the general public, I think that's what really makes them mad. I actually think the Toronto Star is jealous of these working people. I think the Star believes their newspaper columns, I don't know, I should be paid a million bucks a year. And the folks who actually build the world, well, they're my servants. They should be paid less than me, and they should be respected less than me in my outstanding journalism. Me, you know, I've got two university degrees. But the day I say that, what I do for a living, pontificating and bloviating into a camera, the day I say that is more morally important than someone without a university degree who not only builds our country and gives us energy and puts food on the table, but more importantly, builds a life for himself and his family with dignity and without a handout from Justin Trudeau. Well, if I ever do that, that's the day you should stop watching The Rebel. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, there is a book called The Trudeau Report, and it is about Justin Trudeau. It was written by the former ethics commissioner, Mary Dawson, about the Trudeau family's repeated visits to Billionaire Island. That's the nickname of a secretive private island in the Bahamas owned by the Aga Khan, who's not only a very wealthy man and a businessman, but he's the spiritual leader of the world's moderate Ismaili Muslim faith. Well, the Aga Khan has a lot of economic dealings with the government of Canada, grants and other projects. And so this Trudeau report was a study into whether or not Trudeau breached the conflict of interest laws by taking this secret vacation. The short answer is yes, he did. It's worth a read though to see just the lengths that Trudeau went to justify the secret trip. And to me, what I'll never forget is how Trudeau's family, for example, his wife, repeatedly called the Aga Khan and said, can we come back to the island? There was one case documented in the Trudeau report where uh, Sophie Trudeau called the princess, the Aga Khan's daughter, and said, can we come and visit? And the princess said, well, we're not there. And Sophie Trudeau said, oh, that's fine. We just want to use your place. It was shocking. Well, now we have more interesting news that's less shocking and more hopeful. A federal judge has ordered the commissioner of lobbying to reopen an investigation of Trudeau from a lobbyist point of view. Well, joining us now to figure this whole thing out is our expert in such matters. You know him, Manny Montenegrino, a former senior lawyer in Ottawa, former lawyer to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and the boss of Think Sharp. Manny, great to see you again. 
Nice to see you, Ezra. Uh, the Trudeau report is fascinating reading to, to show the shenanigans that Trudeau got up to from an ethics point of view. But tell us what this court order means that now the lobbying commissioner must reinvestigate Trudeau. Yeah, no, it, it says a lot. There's a lot of legalities in the report. And, and Ezra, I, I want to make it kind of simple for your viewers on a particular point. The federal court rarely, rarely intervenes in a quasi-judicial matter. And what basically what that means is courts are very hesitant to give opinions or interfere in the operations of quasi-judicial or or governmental type of decision-making process. And, and it's very simple why. Courts don't want to be making decisions for all these bodies. And so they say, go at it, make your own decisions. But if you breach and really substantially breach your duties of natural justice, and that means you really got to make a big, big mistake, the courts will step in. And that's a very rare rare use of the court's powers over these quasi-judicial bodies. Well, it happened, and that is alarming. I'm surprised that we are not seeing great reports about this because what the federal court said, and it just didn't say you made a few mistakes, it was a, a complete indictment of, of, of the quasi-judicial offer that investigated the Aga Khan and the free trips by Trudeau. It said, I mean, it, it said it lacked transparency. It lacked justification. It was an unreasonable uh, uh, deliberation of the process. I mean, that is basically saying, the court is saying, you didn't even do your job. Huh. And that's frightening uh, for every Canadian because, and, and I'll tie it to the obstruction of justice and the SNC-Lavalin uh, case. You, Ezra, we know what the prime minister has done. He silenced two cabinet ministers with his privilege, enforcing privilege on him, so we don't get the whole story. He silenced the Justice Committee. So we don't get the story. He silenced the ethics committee and he points to Canadians. And say, yeah, but we have the ethics commissioner. They're going to look at it. Well, the federal court has said these quasi-judicial bodies are barely doing their job. So it's extremely alarming. Yeah. You know, I, I take your point. And for non-lawyers, uh, you know, a, a general court doesn't want to pretend they're an expert in the narrow field of lobbying or the narrow field, I don't know, the liquor control board. They want to defer right. to these expert agencies and only interfere when there's something grossly wrong. Can I quote to you from Justice uh, Patrick Gleason? That's the federal right. judge that made this very rare intervention. I want to quote from his ruling, and I'm reading from Blacklock's reporter. So this is the judge. The commissioner, that's the lobbying commissioner, was required to take a broad view of the circumstances in addressing the complaint. Instead, the record before the court reflects a narrow, technical, and targeted analysis that is lacking in transparency, justification, and intelligibility when considered in the context of the commissioner's duties and functions, the decision is unreasonable. That's tough talk. I mean, judges are very polite people. They're like diplomats in a way. But that's uh, a judge tearing a strip off the, the lobbyist commissioner, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and it, it, it's alarming because 
the courts, as you say, never get involved, especially when you have a quasi-judicial body uh, like the Lobby Commission or the Ethics Commission. They don't get involved in their work. Um, and to do so is really making a very big statement. So we, ha we should be alarmed. And there's obviously much more in, with respect to this. We're talking about multiple trips. We're talking about at least $200,000 of free trips that the prime minister took. Now, normally there are, and Ezra, you can go through the criminal code and I forget the section and I tweeted it, but there's a mirror section in the criminal code dealing with a public official getting, uh, using its office in order to get to, to get a gain. And there is, there is really something much more in this report. And you could see that the, the court is saying, you did do your job. You kind of hit it. It was pretty shoddy. Do it again. And that's very alarming to Canadians. Yeah. I see that now uh, the new lobbying commissioner, Nancy Belanger, has to examine what the Aga Khan's foundation did, because they're the lobbyists, so to speak. Do you think that this will require the PMO, Trudeau and his wife Sophie, who contacted the Aga Khan so much, do you think it will, the examination will be of their conduct, or do you think it'll focus on the Aga Khan? And I have to tell you, reading the Trudeau report from Mary Dawson, it is so clear to me that this, all of these initiatives, can we come to the island? Can we come to the island? Can we have a party at your place? Oh, I know you're not there. Can we use the place? It all came from the Trudeau family. In fact, reading it, it feels like the Aga Khan was sort of shocked that they just wanted to use him for his stuff. Maybe he should have reported it. But it's so evident to me reading that Trudeau report, this was all Trudeau. This was, I don't think, Manny, that this was the Aga Khan trying to ingratiate right. himself. I think it was the opposite. I think he was saying, geez, this prime minister sure is a, you know, uh, taking advantage, but I, I guess I shouldn't say no. That's how it read to me. Absolutely. And, and Ezra, you forgot the timing aspect. It was within months of the prime minister becoming the prime minister. It, it, it was, it was a, a nine-month plan before they had their first trip. So they started it within a few months of being in office. They started, you know, cashing in on the entitlements. And the Aga Khan was a, was a perfect place to go. And why not go to a perfect island? And I agree. It will, it should bleed into the prime minister and, and his family and whoever else went on the multiple trips. And I'm talking bleeding into points that, as you say, if it's proven that these were demands and the Aga Khan knew that never has hosted a, a, a Canadian uh, prime minister uh, and the Aga Khan felt pressure to do so. That brings in, will bring in, may bring in, should bring in an investigation by the RCMP. Are you using your office in order to get a gain? And the answer to that question, from what I know now, what I see, starts months after he becomes prime minister. The family basically, basically harasses the Aga Khan to give a family vacation. There are multiple vacations. They basically use it as a, as a as a, well, a timeshare uh, while they're uh, while they're in office. Uh, so that really raises a, a bigger issue. And will the will will the RC will the RCMP pick up the report and say what really happened here? Was there an abuse? Was there a demand? Was there basically using your power in order to extract a gain for the family? Yeah, you know, it aesthetically. 
the Trump family, I mean, he's a billionaire. You can argue how many billions, but luxury, private jets, hotels, glamour. Um, how glamorous and how rich, I don't know, but that's a lifestyle. It seems to me, again, reading the Trudeau report of how Sophie Trudeau kept calling up and said, can we come to the place? Can I bring my girlfriends? So she wanted to go there and sort of show off to all her girlfriends, hey, girls, weekend out at this private island. And again, the, the Aga Khan's daughter said, well, we're not even going to be there. And so I think Sophie Trudeau liked it better that way. It's, sure. I mean, put yourself in that position, Manny. Let's say you had a really nice cottage somewhere, uh, not a private island. The Bahamas a really nice cottage. And someone who, the wife of someone who you vaguely knew, said, can I come and use it? And of course you weren't friends. I mean, you only talked to Justin Trudeau once in 30 years, the Aga Khan, and let alone you never met his wife. But are you really, it's such a, so much chutzpah well, to ask, yeah, how could you I even have, say no to that? Well, yeah, that, that's one way of looking at it. So I'm gonna look at it from the Aga Khan's point of view. The Aga Khan has been doing very good work worldwide and in Canada and has worked with Canada and has successfully obtained uh, uh, funding for the good work. Now, think about it. There's a change in government. There's a person that's in government. Wife gives you a call within a few months, and you must feel that there is this threat over your head. And I, I'm not saying these are allegations. These are something that has to be investigated by either the police or someone. But if you're the Aga Khan and you've been doing work with Canada for years and years and years and, and, and very good work for the Ismaili community and for charities, and you get a call within months of the leader of the new prime minister's wife wanting to have a girl's weekend or a girl's week at your premises and you feel pressured, and you feel you have to say yes when you probably would say no, but you're worried because this prime minister, and we've heard, gets what he wants. He gets what he wants at the risk of perhaps maybe losing the funding you've received for years. And we saw what the prime minister has done with the attorney general uh, when he gets what he wants. So the, the, the real concern I have is how much pressure, and you've alluded to some of it, how much pressure was put on the Aga Khan? How much did he relent? Why did he relent? Was it even spoken? Was it even threatened? And these are questions that have to be asked. And if they're anywhere approaching the answer that yes, yes, pressure, pressure, yes, perhaps funding, millions of dollars of funding would be lost to the uh, Ismaili purpose, the, their charitable purpose. And they said, yes, you can have my island while I'm away because they were afraid. This is a big, big case that has to be reviewed and reported on. And I'm just surprised uh, that it's not. And it's, and, 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 and it's alarming to me. Yeah. You know, uh, the only other first lady, I know we don't use that term in Canada, that I know is uh, Lorreen Harper, who's as down to earth as they come. She's a country girl from Turner Valley, Alberta. Uh, just folks playing like super normal gal. And the idea that she would call up some world leader's daughter to get access to some, you know, luxury retreat, it's unthinkable. I mean, she, but here's my question to you. It, is it really that this is the first and only time Trudeau or even his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, did this? I put it to you, Manny, that when you grow up a trust fund millionaire, Justin Trudeau, son of a trust fund millionaire, Pierre Trudeau, 
the, and you have the famous last name and you, you're handsome and you, you have cachet and charisma, that your life is like this, that you ask for things and you quite often get them. I, here's my question to you, and again, it's just speculation, but I, if you have the chutzpah to ask a princess for access to a private island and you've never even met her, I'm guessing that's not the first and only time you've ever done that. And the reason I say that is there's a lot of valuable and rich and luxurious stuff out there. A private plane owned by Bombardier. Um, we saw how SNC-Lavalin treated Muammar Gaddafi's son with luxury. In his case, it was prostitutes and, and parties and hotel rooms. And so my worry is that Justin Trudeau and his wife Sophie Gregoire Trudeau are so used to this life of entitlement. since. Trudeau was a baby, that I think he just thinks it's normal to ask people for things. And I bet if we actually knew the full truth, he does this all the time. Well, we've seen, again, uh, you know, your, your premise is, is soundly based, but let's look at the facts. There are facts that are known to the public where this has happened. The eight-day India trip, I mean, that was a wonderful family vacation right. for, the, for the Trudeaus. It cost millions and millions of dollars. And then they had to kind of say, well, we got to make some business sense out of this, or it just looks absolutely obscene to the taxpayer. So they talked about a $250 million trade that they're going to get from India that was already there over a five-year period. I, I think they spent more on, 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 the, uh, on the trip than the trade deal, yeah. but the trade deal was already there. So there's that one instance. Ezra, there's the other one where they bought the whole theater to see, I forget the play now, it was... Uh, right, Come uh, From Away in uh, come, Broadway. Right, they bought the whole theater in New York. And he gave 50 very, million bucks to Trevor Noah you know that um, yeah, late night right. comedian, he just said so, in a tweet, so, 50 million bucks, how's that by you? Yeah, so there's a lot of evidence that Trudeau does believe, Prime Minister Trudeau does believe he's entitled. So it wouldn't surprise me if, that, if, if the RCMP or if someone investigates this, there was strong demands about giving, the, and I think they've used the property at least two times. One was a girl's week and the other was with the Trudeau family. I mean, that, that's, that's really bordering on too much. I don't know if there was a third or fourth vacation. It said multiple vacations, and I, I don't know what that means. But if it was more than once, more than twice, and you're demanding and you're there when your hosts aren't there, clearly there's lots of evidence of, of that form of abuse. So there is a sense of entitlement. We heard we heard uh, uh, the evidence that uh, in the SNC-Lavalin uh, case that he gets what he wants. This is, a, this is a, so why wouldn't he feel entitled? Yeah. And, and Ezra, let's go back to the beginning of time, if you will, under the uh, Timovic um, uh, where he was a, a part of the Katinovic uh, uh, Association, right. where he traveled the world. Now, Ezra, at that time, I think Justin Trudeau was in his 20s, early 20s, and, and there was a, a wonderful uh, Toronto Sun report on it. And if you can Google it and find it out. But basically, it said that Trudeau, during this Katinovic, was living higher on the hog than the president of Katinovic. Wow. And he was just one of the kids. And he was spending $400 on lunches. Yeah. Uh, hotel rooms were more luxurious than the president on these on this wonderful little, uh, I'll call it elitist little uh, organization that took care of friends of the Trudeau and, and, and the like. So there's lots of evidence to prove and show that he's got a sense of entitlement, of government money entitlement, and therefore it wouldn't surprise me that that he knew of the Aga Khan 
they may have known that the Aga Khan gets 40 to 50 or hundreds of million dollars from the Canadian government over the years for doing wonderful charitable work. Uh, and they may have known that and said, well, this is a wonderful island. It's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a private island, a billionaire island. No one will ever experience that. Money can't buy it. We put estimates of $200,000 on it, but money really can't buy a trip there. Yeah. And no one can be there. So it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Let me throw one thing at you. And you just made me think of something because, Manny, about 10 years ago, before I joined the Sun News Network TV station, um, I was sort of a jack of all trades. One of the things I did, uh, I mean, in the 2008 election, I, I volunteered for Stephen Harper's campaign, and I wrote speeches occasionally for politicians. And I wrote two or three speeches for Senator Mike Duffy. And I charged, I don't know, a few grand for them or whatever. Right. One of the things I did for to make a living before I, I got into the TV business. And so when the police investigated Mike Duffy for his expense account, they contacted me. And they met me and they asked me right. all my dealings about Mike Duffy. And I had absolutely nothing to hide. I wrote the speeches. It was legit. I, I sent in the bill. I got paid. Uh, I didn't even think twice about it. I met the police in person. They recorded everything. They asked for evidence. I didn't have any objection. I gave it to them. I was actually, I actually testified at the trial. I was cross-examined. It, it was a very, very small part to play. But they interviewed dozens, like I was a teeny tiny player. Right. And I didn't do anything wrong. I just wrote a speech for the guy 10 years ago. My point is the amount of manpower and research and digging, and I was actually testified at trial for about an hour, um, dozens of people, hundreds of hours of police investigation over trivia that amounted to nothing. And Manny, I'm wondering where are the cops with these massive scandals. My speeches that I wrote for Duffy were completely innocuous. I got paid a couple of grand, it was legit, no problem. Where's the RCMP when it's a $200,000 secret vacation from a princess? Where's the RCMP when Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpotts are, are sacked? Where are they, they, they came and met with me over a speech for a couple of grand. Where are they when it's something real and big? Well, exactly. I mean, when you bring up the Duffy uh, matter, there was absolutely no evidence of any wrongdoing except rumors and innuendos. And the RCMP sent a squadron of people, as you say, to investigate everybody and charges were laid and the court threw it out and found Senator Duffy's testimony credible. Now, all the RCMP has to do is pick up the Ethics Commissioner's 73-page report which I did, which sets out the evidentiary fact of what could be criminal conduct by taking $200,000 from a, 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 a person because you are the person of authority, you are the government official. So all they have to do is start, read the report. Now read this this decision by the, by the court. There's so much more evidence to at least begin an investigation and it hasn't done. Uh, so it, it, you know, you talk about entitlement, absolutely. I mean, there is so much, and, and this is probably the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I, I, will, I will share with you one little story that I think uh, you'd like to hear uh, on the first anniversary of, of uh, Prime Minister Harper's um, uh, elect, being elected to government. I think it was uh, uh, January 26th, 2007. Uh, I was invited to uh, 24 Sussex, 
uh, for a little party because it was just a, a thing to do. I couldn't go because my wife and I had booked a vacation. And I sent a very inexpensive bottle of champagne to say, sorry, I can't be there. Um, uh, uh, have a good time. They wouldn't take the champagne. The prime minister wouldn't take the bottle of champagne. Hmm. He, he said, I mean, he didn't say this to me, but I inferred that he would not take any form of gift from anyone. And I, and I remember thinking at that time, if we have a prime minister that won't even take, and, and by the way, Ezra, it was a cheap bottle of champagne because I'm a conservative. It wasn't <laughs> one of those, it wasn't, and an immigrant, so, you know, but it wasn't one of those, but it was, uh, and I thought to myself, if this prime minister uh, would not take a bottle of champagne, this is the most ethical prime minister we have. We have the complete total opposite now. Yeah. This is a fellow that thinks he's entitled to, to trips, to movie theaters, to, to everything. And, uh, and it shows, and there's probably so much more. What an amazing anecdote that is. And the two yeah. of you were yeah. friends, and it was just yeah. a bottle of wine, and people drink things anyways, and he wouldn't take that. It's just, what a, what a great reminder of how far we have fallen. Yes. Manny, it's great to talk to you about these things, and I'm glad we are because uh, I quoted from Blacklock's reporter, and I see there's a modest story in Global News, but this, if it were it's a, a conservative, would be front page. It's a huge story because we're talking about basically, was there possibly some form of undue pressure? Now, we saw the SNC-Lavalin where there was nothing but pressure, yeah. uh, you know, continual pressure for four months by 10 people because the prime minister wanted something. You don't think that the Aga Khan experienced some form of pressure because they wanted to try a private island? I don't know. Yeah. I think so. All right. Well, very interesting as always, All Manny. Right. We really are grateful to you for your wisdom and your experience. And I very much appreciate the anecdote of the be bottle sure. of wine. That's that's quite telling. Great to see you, Mike. Champagne, champagne, champagne. Champagne. Sorry. Yeah, champagne. There Cheap you go. Champagne. Cheap <laughs> champagne. <laughs> Our friend Manny Montenegrino. Right. He is the CEO of Think Sharp, and he joins us via Skype from Ottawa. Stay with us. More ahead on the Rebel. Welcome back on my monologue yesterday about Eve Torres, a Quebec politician, making a joke about burning down the big basilica in Montreal. Deborah writes, that was definitely a veiled threat by Eve Torres. It is only a matter of time before our churches burn. She should be held to account for her comments. Well, you know, uh, when you say it's only a matter of time, I think you need to put that in past tense. We see attacks on churches regularly in Canada. Most of the time, it's just graffiti or some small vandalism. But there have been arson, there have been priests attacked. I think, wasn't there a priest that was attacked in Canada just a couple of weeks ago, was caught on camera. I think that was in Toronto or Montreal. Yeah, it's happening. It's just underreported, just the same way Eve Torres. You won't see mention of it anywhere in the English press. Jerry writes... The CBC and other mainstream media are in protect the predator mode. Yeah, what do you think of my construction of the, the boy who didn't cry wolf? We all know the fable about the boy who falsely cried wolf. But the contrapositive of that is, what about the boy who should have cried wolf but refused to? That's what we have here. Liza writes, can we get some extra security to protect that Montreal church, please? Yeah. Um, how bizarre that Eve Torres herself recommended it. Sounds like she knows something's coming. Unbelievable.
Well, folks, that's the show for today. Until next time, on behalf of all of our friends and workers and talent and everyone here at Rebel World Headquarters, see you at home. Good night and keep fighting for freedom.